but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everybody, welcome back to The Body Surf. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. And this is our Wimbledon recap. How are you at the end of this fortnight? Exhausted. I feel bowled over. I feel like a bus has run me over. How do you think Kevin Anderson feels? I think Kevin Anderson is really pissed that he had <laughs> to play John Isner, frankly. Right. <laughs> So these past, I would say, 72 hours, the last 72 hours of this tournament were wild. Listen, I blame everything on the men's side that we're going to be talking about on Milos Raonic. I think he is the culprit. He had one job to stop John Isner, and he could not do it. <laughs> he's that not the only one. That would have just fixed everything. Yeah, but he's the one with... The, the pedigree, former Wimbledon finalist, a more well-rounded game, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Turns out he just probably wasn't there physically enough yet to be able to do it. So we had a roof drama, curfew drama, scheduling issues, a new champion, an old champion, a six and a half hour match. This, the second week of Wimbledon brought us a lot that was not to be expected. But let's start with your new Wimbledon champion, three-time Grand Slam winner, Angelique Kerber. A lot of people did not pick her at the beginning of this tournament, but watching her go through, I would say, the first four or five rounds, she announced herself as a major contender. And I have to say, from the quarterfinals on, I am in no way surprised that she took this title. We talked about her match against Naomi Osaka in the first week on the last episode. And how Naomi just couldn't deal with, A, her game, and also troubleshoot the patterns of Kerber's game in the match. And she made that win look so easy, Kerber against Osaka. She started with Zvonareva in the first round, Claire Lou, then Osaka, then Belinda Bencic in the fourth round. Kazatkina in a wonderful two-set match in the quarterfinals. Ostapenko in the semifinals, and then Serena in the final. So Claire Lou's the only player who took her to a third set. Kazatkina, as you said, they played a great semi or a quarterfinal. The last game was like there was like a twenty-something shot rally. Kazatkina was saving match points. She is slowly but surely announcing herself and showing what she can do on any surface. She got to play on big stages at both the French and Wimbledon, and I, for one, am excited to see what she brings us next. The semifinal with Ostapenko was over in a flash, it felt like. If you're a power hitter and you're not on your game, Kerber is the nightmare opponent. There is literally no one worse. As we saw with Osaka, as we saw with Ostapenko, as we saw with Serena. Exactly. And even if you are on your game, Kerber is so good at defending and finding the gaps in the court and passing you with the net. She is a tough contender for anyone on any day. Yeah, but her game specifically matches up brilliantly with power players. Oh, it absolutely does. Like when she's does. playing so-called counterpunchers 
then it becomes a tougher ask for her. Mm -hmm. Some people were suggesting that Benchich may be a very difficult out for her. It didn't end up being like that, but I can definitely see it. The head-to-heads are not as strong. And for the people who decry Kerber as a three-time Grand Slam champion, that it's kind of a fluke that she's making hay while the sun isn't shining for other players, well, which is it? Because the premise of that argument is that she's uh, somebody who doesn't have a lot of power, who just kind of defends from the baseline, her game isn't exciting, she's not that skillful to warrant three Grand Slam titles. Some say even one, right? Like, that's Mm, the argument. Right. But at the same time, she's out here beating these players with the game that you say is befitting of those accolades. Right. She's beating those players, and easily. Why don't we look at the players who she's beaten for her three Grand Slam titles? I think where we have to start is she's beaten Serena Williams in two finals. And you can say that Serena wasn't herself in this Wimbledon final, that she wasn't playing particularly well, but the truth is, you beat Serena twice in a slam final, the only other person to do that is Venus. That's a, that's a big deal. You just cannot discount that. And then there's basically everybody else at the top of the game right now. In her major runs, she beat Wozniacki, Petra Kvitova, Pliskova, Joanna Conta in Australia, Azarenka, Kazatkina, and Ostapenko. You're saying throughout the course of her 21 matches winning those three yes. slams... These are the players that she's beaten. So I would say that's pretty stiff competition in this day and age. And I don't think there's an argument that, oh, these players weren't ranked high enough at the time to make it worthy. Because we know that in women's tennis, a top 10 ranking doesn't mean a whole lot these days. The bottom line here is we're not having it for folks who want to undercut this achievement. I have a lot of sympathy for Kerber because when she won pretty much everything in 2016... She got that pushback a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot at every turn. And then in 2017, she got shit on from those same people at every turn. Well, <laughs> because she, she was going through it, mm-hmm. right? She had a terrible year. She barely defended any of those points. And now she's come back in 2018. She told us at the start of the year it was a new year for her. And the results have been steady. She had that title run, I believe, at the start of the year deep run in Australia, has been consistent, and then now she's come all the way back at Wimbledon, is back to number four in the world. I mean, to be knocked down so much Mm. and to come back, it's really admirable. And now let's talk about Saturday, though. The final, I would argue that Angelique did not have to bring her best on Saturday. She wasn't forced to bring her best against Serena. She still played as well as Serena allowed her to play, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like, she did what she had to do and played very well. You know, like, for her to get to her best, Serena would have to be near her best as well. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, she would have had to have more balls in play, Yeah, basically. Watching Serena on Saturday, it didn't seem like the same player who went out against Gerges, if that makes sense. She didn't seem to be moving that great. Her error count was way, way up compared to her previous few matches. The first serve percentage was good. Like, it was actually very good. It was 75%, but she wasn't winning enough on that first serve. I was, it was just, I'm not sure if she was dealing with nerves, with physical problems, or it was just a bad day. But it did seem like a different player than the previous few rounds. 
She was also playing a different player. Mm -hmm. She played a lot of folks who gave her one type of look in this tournament. Georgia in the quarterfinals, even though she fell behind in the first set, there was only one way that match was going to go. Right. Full throttle from both players to the finish line. Mm -hmm. Kerber, you have to think on your feet and uh, come up with different options in the moment. And this was a type of match and something we had talked about on the show uh, last time, I believe. What's going to happen to Serena when she has to troubleshoot a different style of game, different looks within a match? And she had no answers against Kerber, who was very game in this final. She tried to come to net. It was a horror show, a flashback to the 2016 Australian Open final where she just seemed to just advance to net willy-nilly and just get past every which way. That seemed to be one of her solutions at one point. Didn't work. Really, Serena couldn't hit through Kerber as well. That's one of the main problems in that matchup is that if Serena is not feeling her game, then it's difficult to peg Kerber back behind the baseline and hit through her. And a player like Serena is not going to want to grind out here on grass. Like, that's just not how she's going to win these points. And every time we got into a rally of, like, four or five strokes or more, the advantage is hugely on Kerber's side. Kerber's movement, obviously, like, that goes without saying. You mentioned Serena came to the net a lot. She was drawn to the net a lot. And that's something that worked so well in 2016 in Australia. Her volleys were not working. She won exactly half of those 24 points at net. The volleys were terrible. They were bad. They were bad. And I, ugh, I miss the days when Serena was a really good volleyer. That hasn't been the case in a long in time. A, <laughs> in a long time. I know, time. I know. But, you know, Kerber goes cross-court almost every time when she's passing. And Serena was not always reading it, even though it is very predictable. Like, even I noticed it, and I barely noticed these things. And Serena is a huge server, and Kerber is winning a much higher percentage of points on her own serve. It just felt like nothing was working. Did you see how many times Kerber used the body serve <laughs> to great effect against yeah. Serena? Yep. Kerber is also able to open up the court with those short angles within rallies and stretch Serena on the baseline. Right. Which is another challenge this early in her comeback. It's one thing when Serena has been playing the full year and is in the throes of a great season or what have you, but this is only her fourth tournament back. And to have to deal with that crafty and able an opponent, it's uh, it was always going to be a tough ask. Right. And this is also a player who played a very, very good final against her in 2016 at Wimbledon. I don't want to sound like we're beating up on Serena or making it all about her, but... This is her fourth tournament back. She obviously pulled out of Roland Garros with that pectoral injury, and she really hasn't had a lot of match play or a lot of recovery since that injury. So, you know, I am super happy with where she's at right now. I'm optimistic, and I'm just impressed. The truth of the matter is, for Serena's run at Wimbledon, is that for fans, and she has said as much for herself... It should be a performance to be very pleased with. Frankly, her level of opposition wasn't the strongest. Much was made about her seeding ahead of the tournament, whether she would be seeded, what would she be seeded at. She landed at 25, and the draw just opened all the way up for her, especially right. with Svitolina losing in the first round. She didn't have to play a seeded player until 
the semifinals, mm. where she beat Gerges, who she also beat at the French Open this year. So the, you got kind of a mixed bag. You got some outstanding performances. You got maybe a chance to play yourself into some form more easily than you would have if you had to play more difficult players earlier on in the tournament. You got to make a slam final. <laughs> right. You know? And that in itself is confidence boosting, I'm sure. The comeback long term, and Serena says that she's only just getting started, the comeback long term will be dealing with all different kinds of players in different conditions. A lot of these women got their life while Serena was out. We've had three different slam winners this year, two of them first-timers. We have counterpunchers, grinders, defensive players really excelling on the WTA. And although Serena has handled all of these players at some point in her career, it gives a lot of different looks. This is not uh, exclusively like the big babe tennis of yore. The point is that I'm trying to make, she's done all this practice and hard work to get to where she is. But I think she knows that she has so much more work to do. Oh yeah, yeah. A couple of shout outs to some of the other women in the draw. Yulia Gerges, first time making the second week of a Grand Slam, makes it all the way to the semifinals. This at age 29 or 30, re-enters the top 10. Hats off to you. By no means did she embarrass herself against Serena in the semifinal, even though the score was not very flattering. Shout out to Kiki Burtons. Burtons was up big time against Gerges in the quarterfinals. And Gerges came roaring back to win in three sets. Burton's actually made me look like a damn fool very shortly (laughs) after the last episode. So thank you, Kiki. Uh, Because I had said that we're going to get a Kerber-Plishkova final and that it was going to be flipped from the 2016 US Open final. And promptly, Burton's went out and made a a meal of that for me. We have some other stuff to say about uh, Dominika Sibolkova, but that will come later in the episode <laughs> in our See What Had Happened Was. Your men's champion is... Novak Djokovic. You may know him from winning 12 Grand Slams before this. He has not been in the semifinals of a Grand Slam since the 2016 US Open, which he lost in the final to Stan Wawrinka. Did you know that the longest stretch that Novak had gone without making a semifinal in a slam was three Grand Slam tournaments? That was between his very first semifinal, the 20, 2007 French Open, and the 2016 US Open. Really? Yes. <laughs> the most he'd gone was three mm-hmm. Grand Slams without making a semifinal. There were the first seven or eight at the start of his career. Then he made that first semifinal, and then he's been doing it ever since. Wow. So this stretch of seven or eight since the 2016 U.S. Open, it was it was glaring. Of course. There was much hand-wringing about his mental state, his physical well-being, um, his family life, the coaching changes. Like, there was a lot of doom and gloom about the state of Djokovic's career. So he's slowly been building... I mean... Indian Wells was terrible, as you remember. The spring wasn't great. He left the French Open in very poor spirits, even saying, I don't know if I'm going to play grass, 
which I think if you are a journalist worth your weight, you know to take that with a grain of salt. That was obviously someone extremely disappointed in the moment saying something he didn't mean. But after the French Open, I don't know how you could have predicted this. <laughs> the, the, the lesson here is never to count out someone as athletic and someone as mentally fit as Novak. See, I don't find it a surprise at all. He made a quarterfinal at the French Open, made a final and a grass tune-up. He's Novak Djokovic. Like mm. The signs had been there that his game was coming back. And we know the men's field is a total mess. Right. Like, if Federer isn't going to be getting to the final in top form, anybody can win. Mm. Literally anybody can win on the men's tour. That hasn't been the case. Right. Typically, it's been one of the big four or five to step up in the end to do it. But there are gaps all over the place in the men's draw, especially for somebody like Novak on grass, which he's shown that it's one of his, it might be his favorite surface at this point. Isn't that crazy? Now he's a four-time winner at Wimbledon. He's won more than uh, a lot of the grass court greats, like the all-timers. He has six Australian Opens, two U.S. Opens. He lost a bunch of U.S. Open finals. Like the U.S. Open has not been his best Grand Slam. Mm. My point in saying that is that I was, I felt him coming. <laughs> Truly. Like, you could tell that Novak was coming back. And honestly, the, the anger and the, the disappointment and the petulance after the French Open loss made me think so even more. Mm. Because it reminded me so much of what gets Novak going. Right. Because after a lot of his shocking losses earlier this year, he was just like, well, you know. Kumbaya, let's go fishing. Right. It wasn't like, I don't care, but it was a little more blasé than we've come to expect from him. So how did we get here? How do we get to uh, a third straight year with a pretty drab men's final? Yes. Djokovic takes out Kevin Anderson. Big kudos to him for making his second Grand, Grand Slam final. But by the time Kevin had gotten there, he'd been coming off of two marathon wins, including a massive upset over tournament favorite, big tournament favorite, Roger Federer in the quarterfinals, and then a six and a half hour, 26-24 fifth set win over John Isner. Djokovic, for his part, he had a fairly routine run, run through the draw up until Nadal in the semifinals. But let's start with the quarterfinals. Of course, the real shocker is Kevin Anderson taking out Roger Federer after being down two sets to love. A shocking result. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) To my mind, Kevin Anderson beating Roger Federer on grass, honestly, was not as big a shock as one would think. Kevin Anderson is legit at this point. He's a big man with a big serve, but his game has been transformed into so much more in the last couple of years. He is your epitome of workmanlike, putting the hard yards in, in the back end of his career to really become a much improved elite player. Like he is not just a big serve anymore. But the fact that he did that coming from two sets to love down, Kevin Anderson, the player who has been much maligned throughout his career as being mentally fragile, Somebody who's been up two sets to love against the top players in the past and lost in five sets. Like, this is the context to this win against Federer. He was able to 
overcome that on grass on Federer's favorite surface on the hallowed grounds of Wimbledon. It was, to use a much overused word, epic. We had Nadal taking out Del Potro in a four-hour, 48-minute match after Nadal a kind of choked away the second set tiebreak. He definitely did. <laughs> uh, double faulting on set point. It was, it was not... It was not good after at that mm. point in the match at the second no, set. No, the outlook was not good. Because the tenor of that match up to that point, it felt very similar to the French Open match against Del Potro, mm. where Del Potro definitely outplayed Nadal in the first set in rolling errors, but just was unable to get the break point to win the important point when it, when it mattered to, to stick his neck ahead. Mm. And then at the end of that second set, Nadal kind of gives him that second set. And Del Potro is energized. This is a different Del Potro from the first set and a half of the match. And Rafa is well and truly in a fight for his life right? at Wimbledon. What unfolded was an enthralling tussle. Not the best of tennis, definitely through four sets. You'd, you'd be hard-pressed to say it was the stuff of legend. But that fifth set was something else it was but in the score i mean nadal got kind of an early break in that fifth set and then the score was 6-4 but throughout the match you're wondering if this is another example of is rafa going to be hit through by a bigger hitter on grass like is this it for him it had been a while since since he'd been able to get through a five set match like this in a grand slam the last time being the semifinals at the 2017 Australian Open where he beat Grigor Dimitrov in five mm. sets. The impressive part about Nadal, set aside that he hadn't been to the quarterfinals or even the semifinal of Wimbledon in five, six years. This was a, a bit of a surprising result. I would say, yeah. But the truly impressive part about that was the way he was able to buckle down and hold serve under pressure in the really key moments. Mm -hmm. Rafa found himself a lot in the second week, getting down 15-40 on his serve in, in crucial moments and coming up with the goods in crazy fashion. Like, I'm, I'm taken back to the third set tiebreak against Djokovic in the semifinal, where Nadal unleashed some crazy backhands to stay in that tiebreak, to, to come back in that tiebreak when Novak was ahead. Mm. Full stretch to his backhand, and he just laces a backhand down the line. Like, that shot is just stuck in my head. Novak couldn't believe it, almost. And, and with the successive backhands, they became louder and louder. And it was so heartening to see Nadal in those moments at Wimbledon once again coming up with the goods. So moving into the semifinals, now we have a day where Isner Anderson is scheduled first to be followed by Nadal Djokovic. And everybody knows what happens. We had a kind of a rehash of Isner Mahu, which of course lasted 11 something hours. This one felt like, well, it felt like that long, to be honest. It felt like it could go forever. Once the fifth set started getting to, you know, six all, it was like, oh no, this is, this is going to happen, isn't it? It's the same thing. But even before then, each set was taken roughly an hour. Mm -hmm. The matches start at 1 p.m. Wimbledon time. So through four sets, it's like five-something. And then you have Nadal Djokovic to come, which you would expect is not going to go three sets. 
Like there was all, this is the crazy part about it to me. Folks are out here trying to pretend or give Wimbledon the benefit of the doubt that none of this was unforeseen. Right. Like you, <laughs> when the signs were there, clearly. Like you could have, you could have made the decision at ten all, fourteen all, fifteen all, uh, twenty all. I mean, they gave you ample time to to make a decision, right? You could have moved Nadal Djokovic to court one, for example, which is a TV court. I guess they thought they would be cheating the fans if they took that marquee match off center court. But there were options. So as time is ticking away, and very few people at this point are enthralled by this Isner-Anderson match. Can you imagine the people who waited in line in the queue to get tickets for this day? And you're stuck on center court (laughs) through six and a half hours with fucking John Isner? (laughs) That would be the absolute last time i would ever do the cue it was like you know what i think i'll just watch on tv from now on but after isner anderson nadal and Djokovic finally get on center court they close the roof because they anticipate light retreating very soon the wimbledon curfew is 11 p.m clearly they were not going to get this whole match in but they wanted to start it on friday night they could have gotten the match in had it been a straight sets win right Luckily, it wasn't. <laughs> it was far more competitive than that. I didn't know what to expect going into this Rafa Nole rematch. I thought that Rafa had a real chance before the match to beat Novak on a surface other than clay. It's been a long, long time. And he came extremely close. I would argue that Rafa was very near his 32-year-old best. I don't think that Novak was or is at his peak, which is scary, right? This was an indoor match. I think that Novak in an indoor match destroys Rafa. Like, I I think it's a straight set win. And a lot of people took issue with that and said that I wasn't giving Nadal enough credit, but he left a lot of balls a little too high, a little too short. I mean, not a lot. The points were exciting. He was hitting deep for the most part. But I think some of these short balls, peak Novak would punish. The point would have ended quicker. I don't know. I mean, I I can't accept that analysis. <laughs> what we're seeing now is a Rafa whose game is totally different than it was even three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. His backhand has completely transformed his game. And even a simple stat on grass, like the last time they played in 2011 in that final, Rafa came to net nine times throughout the entire match. Rafa came to net like four or five times that much in this match over five sets and his volleying was nearly impeccable his style of play gives novak a different look now so while i accept that novak isn't playing peak novak this is also a different rafa from the one that novak would have been beating up during that two three year stretch like there are different points in their careers now and there was very little fragility from rafa in this match which is an etc that you can't really pin down or quantify when assessing a match. Right. When Novak thinks he has a point one and Rafa laces that backhand back down the line, nor does he know if he's going to go cross court with a short angle. Like the backhand is a big game changer for Rafa right now. Mm-hmm. And this is what Nole does to other people, of course. And Rafa's forehand is much improved. Throughout a lot of those lopsided losses to Novak, Rafa's forehand was not what it should have been. Like It was a transitional phase in Rafa's career, brought on by injury, 
emotional distress, lack of confidence or mm -hmm. what have you. He's different now. And uh, for me, it speaks volumes about Nadal more so that given this match was played indoors, on grass, and Rafa was still able to push him 10-8 in the fifth and have Novak on the run in multiple service games in that fifth set where Nadal was ahead, love 30, 15-40, just unable to really close the deal, in large part due to no lay stellar play. Right. I'm struggling to take anything but positives from this mm. for Rafa. I think there was actually very little separating them in this match. In the fifth set, like you said, Rafa had chances on several of Nole's service games. He had break chances, didn't convert. A lot of that had to do with uh, Nole's serving was clutch, was just unimpeachable. Not just clutch, but he served well the entire match. Right. And the thing is, when you get into a fifth set and you're serving second, like, I felt that as the fifth set went on, okay, the writing is on the wall. Like, Rafa's serve is more vulnerable, and that is normally the person who's going to lose. Had there been a fifth set tiebreak, obviously we have no idea what would have happened. The outcome could have been the same, but when you have to hold serve again and again and again, Rafa's probably the one that's going to break first. That's the commonly held wisdom with respect to serving last in the fifth set, but that's been disproven. Like well, that was by Kevin Anderson. Not just that, but that's been talked about a lot throughout this tournament, that the stats actually show that it's not that much mm. of a disadvantage. I think it's a disadvantage for Rafa specifically. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. If he was able to pull some aces out of nowhere, like if those massive first serves came easier for him, this could be a different story. But that is not to take away from what Novak did in this match and then in the final. Rafa had his chances. He had set points in the third set tiebreaker. He came back the following day, won the fourth set 6-3, looked to be pressing Novak in the fifth set, had chances to go ahead to serve for the match, and just it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So the two things I'd take away from that are, one, Rafa fans should not be disheartened by this. <laughs> no. Rafa made the semifinals of Wimbledon in his 33rd year on this earth <laughs> after having not made the second week in half a decade and going through all those struggles against big servers and injury and not being able to deal with the turnaround from clay to wimbledon because of his knees for whatever reason mm -hmm. so that's a big positive for rafa fans period there are no qualifiers for me the other thing is that novak well and truly is back like what we've seen in recent memory is Novak wilting in those pressure situations? Like, fine, maybe he'll be able to escape once, but he won't be able to escape twice or thrice. Right. Like, that that has not happened at all in the last 12 months. But he did it repeatedly against Rafa in that semifinal. And that was impressive. And then in the final, Kevin Anderson had very little to give physically. He lost the first two sets 6-2, 6-2, and then in the third set, he mounted a real comeback. And it looked like he could possibly take that third set. But again, Novak is too mentally strong, is too confident at the moment. And his athleticism is just unparalleled, in my opinion. So the takeaways here, I don't think that Nole fans need any more confidence. <laughs> because their boy is doing it for them. 
the takeaway here is that Novak is back and uh, he's reminding everyone that he is also a GOAT candidate, which we'll discuss in probably 2025 when everybody's retired. The takeaway for Nole fans is be happy. Right. Like you've been through a fucking dire stretch and this was just spectacular for you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Novak is back. He won Wimbledon. It really could not be any better right now. Now, all of that said, we do have to talk about roof gate, the scheduling problems, just basically a series of confounding decisions by the All England Club, which I feel that This is kind of a reusable idea. Every year there's a series of bizarre, sometimes terrible decisions by Wimbledon. This is what they do. This is very on brand for them. So that night, as we said, they chose to start Nadalovic under the roof. You go with Nadalovic, not Ruffoli? I I hate Ruffoli. I like Nadalovic. It doesn't matter who goes first. Jokadal is fine too. I prefer Jokadal. I like the last names. Anyway, it was started under the roof. The tournament ruled that it had to finish under the roof as well on the following day. So this is the first decision that, to me, is strange. The club decided that the match should finish... Well, that's not the first one. The first one that you think is strange is that it was played indoors in the first place. Well, exactly. Because I think it should have been moved to a different court earlier in the day. Because Wimbledon has banged on and on over the years about how Wimbledon is an outdoor tournament. They have reminded us over and over, as you know. So then we get to the next day, and they've decided they're not going to change the start time. Play will start at 1 p.m., therefore the women's final will have an unknown start time. Man, Mm. people were mad. Why can't play start before 1 p.m.? I don't understand. Uh, It started before 1 o'clock on outer courts, in the first week. So it's not that play never happened before right. 1 p.m. at Wimbledon. But given this unforeseen, give, let's give them that. Given this unforeseen situation where you have to have the men finish their match the next day. If you are at all concerned about upsetting the preparation of these two women who fought the entire tournament to get to this crowning moment, start them two or three hours earlier. Right. So maybe we should start with the curfew thing. A lot was made about this curfew on TV and on social media. The thing is, the tournament is beholden to the Merton Borough Council, which is the lo- basically the local government in Wimbledon, or in the borough of Merton that Wimbledon is a part of. And part of the agreement when they said they were going to build the roof is that, okay, fine, but you will only be able to play till 11 p.m. This is not becoming a nighttime tournament. There's not going to be a night session. And this was from the local borough government. What I didn't know is due to UK licensing laws, most outdoor events do end at 11 in the UK. So this isn't unique. Licensing being liquor licensing. Right, exactly. So, and the reason for this is that it's supposed to consider the local residents of Wimbledon Village. It is still a very residential area. And consider the issue of transit uh, the London Underground does shut down at midnight, and I did a little, I, you know, I did a little research. I'm not from London. There is a night tube as well, but not on the line that goes to Wimbledon. So that is a problem as well. Connectivity. 
Now, I've, there was stuff about a waiver, and I have not found anything explaining if a waiver is possible in any of the research I've done. My understanding that it's not a waiver to play until 2 a.m. It's just for a couple minutes. Okay. So, like, the, the waiver is neither here nor there. Right. I feel like it was dangled as an alternative when this was all happening. And I was like, well, well fuck. Like, pay the fine. Right. Get the waiver. Get the by waiver. By all means necessary. But apparently it's just like, well... And I could be wrong, but my understanding is that, well, you can have a waiver to play five or ten more minutes, and we will not be mad. Mm -hmm. Which is what happened in 2012. Uh, Murray Baghdadis went exactly two minutes over. Two minutes. And the Merton Council leader congratulated himself and said, quote, flexibility and common sense prevailed. Are you serious? But two minutes? Common sense prevailed? How could it not? It... (laughs) In some ways, I'm sympathetic with the 11 p.m. curfew, but in other ways, I'm like, this is a major international city with one of the biggest, I mean, a massive sporting event in London, tennis's greatest stage. Allegedly. (laughs) That's what they say. I just find it all a little quaint and a little 1915. Well, this is 2018. And what becomes untenable to me is the powers that be at Wimbledon not being able to give you a straight answer one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Or not having a full grasp on contingency plans ahead of time to not make this a big old fucking mess. Right. And what I find every year is that the All England Club relies on tradition and honor and empire as a way of explaining away bad organization. In my opinion. Now, I'm an American. What we do is tromp through tradition and destroy it culturally. So what do I know? If Wimbledon were in the U.S., it would have been destroyed for a strip mall long ago, back in the 70s. (laughs) That's true. And there'd be McDonald's and Starbucks all over SW19. Uh, So that's that. The curfew happened. The match was restarted at 1 p.m., Probably could have been started earlier or on a different court. But the women's final with Serena and Angelique Kerber started, I don't even remember, it, well late, mm-hmm. very late, because the match went to a long fifth set. One of the considerations with this match carrying over to Championship Saturday was how will this affect the women in their preparation for their final and in all likelihood having the start time pushed back indefinitely and by indefinitely i mean dependent on whenever the men finish Mm -hmm. whether it's what if we get into a situation where it's 30 28 in the fifth set what do you do with women are they just sitting in the locker room waiting to play their match do you end up then moving them to court one what's Mm going to happen because it felt to a lot of people disrespectful championship saturday you have two championship days championship saturday and championship sunday Championship Saturday is for the woman, or the ladies, as the Wimbledon folks call it. And there's Championship Sunday for the men. So Saturday is, the it's Women's Day. Mm-hmm. The men's doubles final takes a back seat, also gets on center court. The women's doubles final is played on Saturday. That was moved off of center. Now, I don't think that any final in the singles or doubles should be played on a court other than center. I think you've earned your spot. On the other hand, these women are professionals. Serena downplayed it in press. 
she was pushed repeatedly. Clearly, some reporters were trying to get an answer from her that indicated that she felt disrespected by the choice. She refused to give that to them because there's absolutely no way she comes out of that looking good, having been the losing finalist. But the issue, it's beyond being able to prepare because tennis players do that all the time. They wait around for matches to finish every day during majors. The issue is respect and if the shoe was on the other foot, and we've seen this at Indian Wells, at other tournaments, when men's finals are delayed, it is a huge issue. We have a lot of hand-wringing. People question whether tennis is a viable television sport. I mean, it's a big freaking deal when the men's final is delayed. When the women's final is delayed, it's like, well, you're just a sideshow anyway, and maybe you should deal with it. So, sure they were forced to sit around for two extra hours. Both women are professionals at the highest level of their sport. They can handle it. But why are they being forced to handle it? To go back to Serena's press conference, she answered those questions very carefully. You presented it to me because you watched it beforehand as Serena, whoa, she was just not willing to play the game Mm. with those reports. She wasn't going to bite and take the bait. And then when I watched, I was like, It wasn't that at all. I really get the impression that Serena doesn't think it's that big a deal. Mm. Like she expressed that she didn't see an alternative solution for the match referees or tournament directors or whatever. That this was the only way to solve the problem. Right. And she even said that, well, you know, I haven't had a set one o'clock start time the entire tournament. All my matches that I've played have been second on or third on. So I'm always waiting around for the match to finish. So it really wasn't that big of a deal. And I take her word for that. I believe that. And it makes sense. Like like you said, these athletes are professionals. It would not be the first time that they've had to wait around for a match. In fact, they're likely always waiting around for mm-hmm. matches with the exception of finals. And to your point, which is really what the big issue is here, it's devaluing and not giving the women's game its due. And it's something that we've seen time and time again, as you said, And especially at Wimbledon, where the history has been that it's been the slam least acquiescent to change. Of course. That it's had to be pushed over time to give women equal prize money after the other slams had already done it. To give the women equal representation on the show courts. We talked on the previous episode about how that one day, that one day, she won that one game... (laughs) When Wimbledon schedules two women and one man in center court, and it's this big victory yeah, for it, uh, parity and equality at Wimbledon. It turned out to be the one day. Exactly. And so when you've had so many chances to look into your crystal ball and anticipate that something like this could happen with those two men's semifinals matches, and you do not take steps. I'm not here to tell you what those steps are. I don't know. It's not my job. Right? Like, I'm not Mm. concerned about that. For the folks who want to be like, well, well, what should they do? What should they do? I'm not being paid a shitload of money to be a tournament director at Wimbledon, the supposed biggest, grandest tournament in the world. Mm. Like, you decide to start your event, start your day's play at 1 p.m., where you have two matches where odds are they're each going to go at least four hours. What do you do? I will not accept that this was not unforeseen. And so the net effect is, well, we'll just deal with it. And what that means is, 
we'll just deal with it and do whatever we need to with the woman. Because the bottom line is they're not a priority. Mm. That is the takeaway. And in a broader sense, you can't say that women's tennis is an inferior product when they're still not playing on an equal playing field. When if they don't have the same market value, part of that has to be the opportunities they've been given. The, the value that tournaments place on women's tennis, it translates. Like, we get it. We, we understand what the message is. And while the final didn't turn out to be a great match, it had the potential to be. <laughs> I mean, you got Serena Williams in her fourth tournament back, her second slam back, with this incredible story. As much as her story is already incredible, it's that much more incredible. All eyes on her. And Angelique Kerber, with her own story, coming back from a terrible 2017 in another Grand Slam final, her fourth. Potentially a burgeoning at last, at long last, for these folks who've been needing it on the WTA Tour, a burgeoning rivalry at the top of women's tennis, right? You have right. this potential humdinger, and it's just it's just like, well... <laughs> It'll happen when it happens. I mean, the duchesses were there, sitting through Nadal and Djokovic... <laughs> Anna Wintour, Lewis Hamilton, Tiger Woods, all these people are there for Serena, for women's tennis. Let's move on. The doubles draw at this Wimbledon was actually very exciting, especially on the women's and the mixed. Siniakova and Krejcikova won women's doubles. They had just won the French Open. They dedicated their victory to Yana Novotna. It was her, as you all know, the 20th anniversary of her Wimbledon title and the first Wimbledon since Yana passed. And we also found out that Yana Novotna had spoken to Siniakova a lot before she died and said, go out and win Grand Slams. You can do this. And guess what she's doing? <laughs> and she's no no joke in singles either. They beat uh, Nicole Melikar and Kveta Peshka, who's 43 years old. Nicole Melikar is a U.S. player but who was born in Czech Republic. This bench goes very deep. She was the runner-up in women's doubles, but a winner in mixed doubles. This tournament was bittersweet for me with all the reminiscing and tributes to Yana Nabotno. As you all probably know, she was a huge favorite of mine back in the day. And it's one crazy to me that it's been 20 years since she won Wimbledon, which means I have to put into perspective how old I am now and how young I was then. <laughs> And then it's also crazy that she's also not with us anymore. And man, it's the more people talk about her, the more you realize just how special a person and player she was. Mm. You talked about how this tournament was great for doubles and that it was exciting. I don't know if it was more exciting than usual, but it definitely had, it felt to me, more eyeballs on it because of the high-profiled mixed doubles pairings in particular. Mm -hmm. There was Jack Sock and Sloane Stevens to start. They went out. And then you had Jamie Murray and Victoria Azarenka electrifying the crowds throughout the entirety right. of the tournament, coming back from 1-5 down in one of their early round matches and it, making it all the way to the final. Now, this final was televised. The women's singles final was not very long, obviously. But we got to see the entire mixed doubles final. And... Man, so Alexander Peya from Austria and Nicole Malakar played just excellent tennis. Peya's serving was out of this world. I mean, same with Malakar. Like, Murray and Azarenka did not even reach a break point. 
during that match. You have here noted that Jack Shu and Mike Bryant mm-hmm. won the men's doubles title? Yes. Who are those people? I don't seem to recognize I don't those know. names. There are some gentlemen from the United States. Kudos to you because I just find Jack Shu hilarious. <laughs> I think we have really lost the plot on the fact that Jack Sock is an absurdly funny name. <laughs> See, what had happened was... Oh, girl. This really... This survived the whole week, too. This So, Dominika Sibokova, Su Weishie in the round of 16, right? Yes. I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet. It seems like it happened so long ago. You know, the, for the, the mid-Wimbledon episode covered the first three rounds. Mm. Dominika has just kept herself in the press consistently since before the tournament. What happened in this match is that she really just exposed herself. Listen, you, you've been down on her for a while, specifically because of the seating thing. Yeah. I see no flaw in looking out for your own neck. Okay. Like, I, I'm not going to fault her for that. Well, looking out for her own neck is exactly what she did in this situation. What happened was, she has served, Dominica returned. Dominica's return was called out. However, she had gotten the ball back into play. It barely got over the net. So she served, Siblikova hit the ball, was called out, and then Shea's third shot of the rally just barely cleared the net. Right. Right in front of the umpire. But it was in play. Yeah. So Dominika challenges. It turns out that her ball was good. But the umpire says, we're not going to replay the point. It's Siblikova's point, which is outrageous. Because Shea was there, she played the ball, it went in, she was ready to go. This is not something that's open for interpretation. This is a <laughs> right. clear-cut rule. Like right? you, this you, is the umpire is just wrong. Sibylkova yeah. is just wrong. It was a mistake, and uh, Shea was beside herself. Right. So she said, "No, I'm not going to continue this until you bring the tournament referee out." Supervisor, supervisor. <laughs> and for once, that person was right. The referee overruled the umpire, which. I mean, you almost never see no. that. It was so clear-cut a mistake. So Sibokova was very upset. The whole thing lasted like seven or eight minutes. Play was stopped. And after the match, so during this whole debacle, Tracy Austin is commentating, and she is dragging Dominica in this bitch. <laughs> like, <laughs> Tracy Austin is who you go to if you want the unvarnished truth. Her and Chris Everett. Although Chris Everett is not always right. But she does always tell her truth. (laughs) Tracy Austin was like, what is Dami doing? Like, she knows the rules. It is very clear that this point should be replayed. Like, this is ridiculous. Just go ahead. Like, it's obviously a mistake by the umpire. What are you thinking? The only way that that would have been Dominica's point is if she didn't make a play on the ball... Or if it was unplayable, like there was no way she was going to get to it. But she literally hit it back into play. So by you, by by Sibylkova's reasoning, it should be Shea's point then, because the ball was good and she got the ball back, and Sibylkova didn't make a well, play on it. Yeah. Well, if you're going to take it all the way there, yeah, you're right. Now, what, <laughs> where she really exposed herself was in press afterward. Dominica said, I had no sympathy because it's just about the chair umpire. It happened to me many times. So 
to me, she said this several times, that bad calls have happened to me many times, which to me is an admission that, yes, I'm wrong in this situation, but I have been wronged so many times that I deserve it. And she's saying the umpire's decision should be final. Mm. So even though it's wrong, and I should have lost this point, the umpire made a decision, so the umpire's decision should stand. Mm -hmm. And I should win this point even though I don't deserve it. And fuck her, because I've had this happen to me many times. Right. Which, God, watching that was like, wow, we are really never going to get a union in WTA, are we? Like this... (laughs) This is the most self-centered way of looking at the world. And maybe I'm being a little dramatic, but there is just like no collective thought going on. There's no like what's, it's like what's fair for me is not fair for you. I don't care if it's fair for you. I've suffered enough. It's my turn. You know, it was just, it was disgusting to me. And then she added this chestnut. They were speaking Chinese or whatever language. Like, girl, just stop while you're behind. It wasn't just that. She was explaining the situation. And then she used her hand and she was like, but then the umpire made a decision. And then they went and were speaking to each other in Chinese or whatever language. So the implication there. And then she stopped herself after that Mm. and changed the tenor direction of the, 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 the statement. The implication there is that the, the umpire made a decision, but then they went and spoke in their secret little coded language. Mm-hmm. And then the umpire's decision was overturned. And then things started to go against me. Right. This They were speaking some like Chinese adjacent language together that I clearly don't understand. So she did stop short of a latent Hewittism, accusing uh, Xie and the umpire of collusion. She didn't. She did not say that. So I guess I guess that's one on her. Okay, the implication was there. Whatever. <laughs> the bottom line is this was if you can think about how something can be a bad look and all the possibilities that that could happen and play out, Siblikova nailed all of them. <laughs> point by point, crossed her T's, dotted her eyes, mm. and then did her nails. Like it was <laughs> it was spectacular. Let's move into something a little more innocuous. Who is moving around in the rankings? So Sloan Stevens is up to number three. She was defending 10 points last year from losing in the first round of Wimbledon. She is no longer free and easy. She is defending points from now on. Did you also hear that she's also starring in a new film? What? Do you know what it's called? What? It's called... How to lose in the first round and still move up a point oh in the God. rankings. <laughs> oh, dear. How Sloane got her groove back. She uh, sure did. <laughs> I will say, like, Sloane is number three. That's with two first round losses at majors. She's done a whole lot of winning like, as well. It's crazy. This is a year's work that has brought you to number three. Had she reached the second week in both of those majors, she would or could be number one. I mean, aside from the the first round loss, Sloane's year has been unbelievable. Seeing a three next to her name to me is like, wow. It's deserving at this point. It is. Kerber's up to number four. She jumps six spots. Muguruza is out of the top five, down to number seven. She's also defending Cincinnati later in the summer. We'll be there to Mm -hmm. report daily on that. Right. 
Gurgis is back in the top 10 at number 10. Venus, unfortunately, is out of the top 10, down to number 14. She obviously was defending runner-up points here at Wimbledon. Sibylkova does not have to worry about her Grand Slam seeding for the moment. She is number 26. Miss Serena Williams, she has vaulted 153 spots to number 28. <laughs> you think that's her biggest jump ever? Probably. And Joanna Conta, spare a thought, has fallen 26 spots to number 50 after a very good result last year at Wimbledon. On the men's side, Kevin Anderson is up to a career high number five, up three spots. Novak Djokovic cuts his ranking in half and then one to number 10. Kenichi Kori making the climb back up the rankings after being out with injury for a while. He's up to number 20, up eight spots. Sam Query shed a tear. Uh, tragic, even. Down 15 spots to number eight, number 28. And, oh dear, Tomasz Berdyk. He drops mm. 35 spots to number 59. Yeah. Uh, not even being able to defend his semifinal points from last year. What else is happening? Chris Everett has had what? I do believe what you mean to say there is it. She has had it. She is done playing around with you hoes on Twitter. She is going to name and shame. I'm here for it. I believe Chrissy is around the same age as my parents. I which do. means I she, do is, she is entering that I do not give a fuck age. And I love it. To be fair, she has been getting acquainted with it for a while now. <laughs> but it seemed like she had sharpened her instruments of choice. Surely. This tournament, because she was precise, she was swift, and she was cutting. Mm -hmm. I mean, she dragged her ex-husband, Greg Norman, on Twitter, which, as we know, he is in need of some savage dragging because he is a big Trump supporter. <laughs> Literally showing his ass all over the place. Uh, liter because literally. he was in the body issue this yes. year. She dragged our our lady mother, Margaret Court. Oh, dear Lord. Setting up the woman's final. Chrissy Everett. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Court's stats, you know, come on screen or come up in a conversation. And she's like, first of all, bitch. <laughs> Ain't nobody even played Australia back then. She says... She won 11 Australian Opens when nobody was going there because it was Christmas. So let's just get that out there. <laughs> so that's that on that. Listen, Chrissy and Martina didn't go to Australia a bunch of times in the 70s, even like at their peaks. Chrissy missed the French Open several times in the 70s for world team tennis. In the middle of her unbeaten streak on mm. clay, she just up and skipped the French Open. Can you imagine how peeved she must be thinking how many slams she left on the table now like right. serena in all likelihood could be chasing chrissy at like 26 28 sure and martina yeah who, who knows but then somebody came to try and well actually chrissy about well you know mm -hmm. talking about christmas christmas but the australian <laughs> open wasn't actually played until like january 30th she said, excuse me, I did not play in the 60s. I played in the 70s and 80s. I know when the Australian Open was. <laughs> Girl. And then somebody tried to come for her. Well, not come for her, but come to her 
and mansplain about how oh i actually think it was a woman it wasn't it was it was a very peculiar situation this woman came into chris's mentions to say well don't you think that djokovic is out here showing that you can come back from injury and be a father and da 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 likening it to serena and what she went through chrissy as a mother of three was just not here for it she quote tweeted and dealt with it (laughs) (laughs) this is the thing she's not only replying she's quoting people to expose them she is leaving them open for trolls to attack she knows what she's doing oh you know that three letter word g-i-f yeah i've said gif before on this podcast and i've been laughed at in our mentions lambasted in our mentions both of us folks came into our mentions and pretended as if we had done something wrong Mm -hmm. but you know what the creator of the g-i-f says that is pronounced jif like the peanut butter Mm -hmm. you know what other word starts with the g-i giraffe have you ever heard of a giraffe i mean like Come on now. Well, this is when, the thing. When G is followed by certain vowels, it sounds a different way. But that's the thing. Like Folks are then saying, well, it cannot be GIF because that doesn't make any sense. And to my mind, I'm like, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, not I, only in the English language. I speak English. It makes sense to me. Not only in the English language, but in other languages as well. Well, of course. In Spanish and in Italian, consonants are... Sp- pronounced differently based on what vowel follows it so if it was ga of course you would say ga but if it was gi ganyar uh-huh you would never say hanyar right no you'd say no. giraldo rivera exactly the consonant is pronounced differently based on the vowel that follows it so i'm just saying i'm i'm telling you all who shaded us we was right mm. the wta fix them jesus because the WTA Today tweeted out across all platforms, not just Twitter. Apparently it was on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Happy birthday to Margaret Court. Winner of 24 Grand Slams and blah, 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 blah. Man, the replies on that were not happy. They were swift, savage, and scintillating. <laughs> Little alliteration there. <laughs> the point is, we we touched on this in our Pride episode. We've kind of been waiting for any any indication, any superficial gesture toward LGBTQ acceptance from the WTA, aside from them having the benefit of Martina and Billie Jean as spokespeople. Where is the gesture toward acceptance of LGBTQ fans? I have not seen it. Ben Rothenberg tweeted out today that you're out here tweeting about Margaret Court's birthday, but you still haven't said anything about Pride Month. Right. You could not even sniff at it. The WTA tour is the leading tour in the history of all women's athletics when it comes to visibility and prominence and dominance of out LGBT folks. Mm-hmm. For fuck's sake, Billie Jean King founded your tour. Billie Jean King. She's out here in the royal box with her wife sitting behind the two duchesses 
having a kiki. Like <laughs> you could not have more visible leaders of your sport and yet we're still struggling and having the WTA found wanting in making that something to celebrate. It's absolutely right. mind-boggling. And not just to celebrate, but acknowledge. Like, you can't even throw us a goddamn rainbow. Like, and let me tell you, part of this, I'm sure, is the WT has outsourced a lot of its media to this mm. company. It's not It's not that it's one WTA... It's not like one corporate message, right? Exactly. Like, you have WTA Networks, and then you have the WTA Insider and all this stuff. Like, the WTA Twitter account is not the WTA Insider account. Mm. Like right. they're totally separate wings of the WTA. And the WTA account is kind of a law unto itself. And I want to know who's running that account. Well, I just wonder if, I don't know. I wonder if they're really tapped into, the, is the marketing strategy this way for a reason? Or are the people running social media just not tapped into who the fans are of the WTA? Or like, it's history. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, is it purposeful or not? A great friend of our podcast suggested this topic for us because it's something that is very near and dear to his heart. The Hopman Cup that happens every January in Perth, Australia, gets some of the top tennis players to play on teams for their country. It's a really popular event for fans every January. It's fun. You it's, get to see people play with each other who rarely do. It's a great way for folks to get match play without the seriousness of it necessarily. We saw Angie Kerber start her year at the Hotman mm -hmm. Cup this year with Sasha Zverev. Right. And they won. And Angie carried him. <laughs> right? Like it's Yeah. Not only is it fun, it it has meaning from a if that's your thing, a nationalistic perspective. Mm. It has practical purposes of getting your game into shape after the off season and it and it brings top tennis players to western australia which otherwise would never be able to see this caliber of talent so the atp recently announced that they were going to launch something called the atp world team cup in 2020 which is an event that would have 24 teams and promise around 20 million dollars in prize money and so it looks like Tournaments like Hopman Cup, Brisbane, and Sydney are at risk if this thing goes through. And this is uh, alarming for us for a number of reasons. One being that women's tennis is at risk if Sydney and Brisbane are seriously undermined. They're big-time joint tournaments before the Australian Because Open. the World Cup, this supposed World Cup, is going to be a men's-only event. Again, like the Labor Cup, yes. right? So this might usurp the Hopman Cup, which is a joint event, and turn it into a men-only event. What's interesting is this, again, is another instance where the ATP is in direct competition with the ITF and at odds with them. We saw this with Labor Cup, of course, with Davis Cup, and it seems like the ATP is just striking out on its own. Every other organization be damned. Clearly, they, they do not find affinity with the WTA. It is like a totally separate thing. They're not interested in cooperation. But they also seem to be intent on competing with the ITF wherever possible. The Hotman Cup is an event that's drawn big, big names year in, year out. Serena's played it. Roger's played it multiple times. Kerber, Zverev were there this year. 
it's not like it's this this small tournament that won't be missed. Right. Like it's a fan favorite. It's a tournament that players like to play. I just don't. Un- it's, well, it's mind-boggling to me. Right. I mean, it's just if this kind of money is on the table, clearly they're going to win. And if you are, whether you're for or against the Davis Cup proposals, these are things that are going to profoundly change the sport. And there's there's kind of a level of saturation, I think. How many of these kind of team cup exhibition things can you have on the calendar for the ATP side? The Labor Cup is in direct competition with the Davis Cup. Know that they're going to yeah. be every year. We found that out. They're going to be at the back end of the of the schedule. And now this World Cup is going to be at the front end of the schedule. Like, just let it be. Who needs this? Who is asking for it? So thank you, Dan Hatch, for sending this our sending this our way. Make use of the hashtag #SaveHotmanCup to make your thoughts known on this issue on social media, and maybe there can be a an uprising, a revolt from tennis Twitter <laughs> that can have some meaningful effect. Thanks also to another friend of the podcast, Grace Onions who has sent us stuff from Roland Garros and Wimbledon now. I was just bowled over to get the postcard today because it was so unexpected. Thank you so much. And Serena is on the front of it. (laughs) Many, many thanks, Grace. We can't really express how thankful we are. What we can express is that if anyone else would like to send us gifts, (laughs) DM us and you can have our address. (laughs) On that avaricious note, let's bring this episode to a close. Wimbledon is done for us, thankfully. It was a slog. It had its moments. It had its typical and then some levels of fuckery. I'm ready to have a week or two off and then head to Cincinnati and get into it. Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm still in mourning. (laughs) I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at The Body Serve on Twitter. Check out our Instagram by the same handle on the Instagram. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you on various media, be it Instagram, Twitter, and also you can email us at thebodyserve at gmail.com. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.